So somebody's already mentioned it. Uh, so I'm not dressed like a geography teacher today. Uh, I've gone more open university tutor style thing today. So I'm, I'm on a downward trajectory. Uh, and instead of about six pages of notes that I had last time or scriptures, that's it today. I'm going to start with uh, a little quiz for you, a little Bible quiz. Maybe I should have come up with a jingle, but I didn't, uh, which is probably a relief to everybody, actually. So uh, let's just keep it in uh, the Gospel of John and keep these answers to yourself. Don't shout out because that wouldn't be good either. And at home, keep your answers to yourself. So in the Gospel of John, uh, who said... Let us go with him that we might die with him. This was when they were talking about going to see Lazarus. Who was the first person outside of the 12 to say to Jesus, you are the Messiah? Didn't say they were easy questions. Uh, To whom did Jesus say, I am the way, the truth and the life? And to whom did Jesus say, I am the resurrection and the life? Does anybody want to hazard a guess? And I'll give you a clue. All of those things relate to only two people. Have we got a guess over here? No? Anyone? No? No? Chris said the woman at the well, no. Well, I don't think she said that, but... So, uh, the people that you may think other things about. Today, we're looking at Thomas in the second half of John 21. Thomas was the one who, when Jesus said, let's go to Lazarus, Thomas was the one who said, let us go with him that we might die together. Thomas is the one to whom Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, in response to something Thomas had said. Uh, What was the other one? And then, in terms of who said to Jesus, you are the Messiah, and to whom did Jesus say, I am the resurrection and the life, it was Martha. Now, that's in John. The thing with Mary and Martha, and the Martha getting worked up, is in Luke. John doesn't cover any of that. So you see a very different interaction between Martha and Jesus in John. And also, we think of, when I say Thomas, what do you think of? Sorry, I don't mean you, Thomas. Doubting. Doubting Thomas. And people can give each other labels, or we can say, don't be a doubting Thomas, which I've always struggled to know what the heck does that mean. I I don't find it particularly helpful. But people can say about themselves, I'm a doubting Thomas, and condemn themselves with it. Or they can say, I'm a Martha, meaning I worry about detail, and that makes me less than or less faithful than. So what I want to do is look at the passage in John 20 about Thomas and see what it actually says and what actually happens. So, Marcus, if we could, please. I can see it there. So this is uh, John 20 from verse 24. 
Now, Thomas, also known as Didymus, which means twin, uh, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Uh, so, this is where Laurie's impinged on my content a bit. Uh, so I've seen a couple of things. Uh, two days this week, I saw stuff sport-wise, that I never thought I would see. And that was Mark Cavendish winning his 31st and 32nd stages of the Tour de France. After five years of no wins there, three years of not even been there, he was written off, and he's come back on top form 13 years after he won his first stage, and he's won more than any other sprinter in history, and is approaching the record for the person who's won the most stages of the Tour de France ever. To me, it was mind-blowing to see him do it. But thankfully, his performance wasn't based on my faith in him. Uh, I'm going to mention this as something for you to watch if you want to, but I'm not going to go into the story. A few weeks ago, Vicky and I watched, uh, a few weeks ago, sorry, Vicky and I watched a film called Searching for Sugar Man. Uh, at the start, we thought, well, this is a bit darker than we expected. But it develops into this phenomenal story uh, about an American musician who I'd never heard of uh, and it's just one of the most mind-blowing stories and unexpected things I've seen. So if you get a chance, uh, Chris, I'm sorry, the only place I found it is on Amazon Prime, uh, but it is a fantastic story. So it's called Searching for Sugar Man. Uh, like I say, at first you think it's a bit dark, it really isn't. It's an amazing story. Uh, I will warn you, though, as well, when he's talking about the sugar man in his song, I don't think he's talking about Messrs. Tate and Lyle. He's talking about something entirely different, because it's from the late 60s. Uh, right, Thomas. So, like I say, we talk about doubting Thomas, and this is in John's Gospel. This story about Thomas is not in the others. But Jesus appearing to the disciples is in all four Gospels. So why did John put this in? And I think the answer to many things as to why did John put it in is at the end of this chapter. He says uh, that the, he did many, many things that aren't recorded in this book. And every episode in here is tiny, really. It's a few sentences. Uh, he says, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And 
we single Thomas out for doubting, but when we look in the other Gospels, the other disciples sort of do the same thing. So in Luke, for example, he doesn't say whether Thomas is there or not, but Luke writes that Jesus appeared to the disciples in a very similar manner to this. But they are fearful. They think they've seen a ghost. And he says to them, don't be afraid. And then to show to them that it really is him and that he's alive, he says, have you got any food? They give him some fish and he eats it. And it said they were still struggling to believe because of joy and amazement. So this scenario, first of all, I would say is not unique to Thomas. It's not that he was necessarily different from them and their response, but he wasn't there. Why he wasn't there, John doesn't say. And I don't know if he had to do something, whether he had to go and see his mum, whether there was some business thing he had to attend to, or quite frankly, whether he was fed up of sitting in, around, uh, in a room full of people mourning, and whether he just went to the pub. I mean, quite honestly, I, we don't know why he wasn't there. So these, the others have this experience, and then they tell Thomas this amazing thing. And my sense then of Thomas's reaction is, he goes, well, I'm not going to believe it unless I see him. Which sort of says, why didn't he appear to me? Why, why wasn't I there? He may be annoyed at himself for not being there for whatever reason. And it's the whole thing of, why me? Or why not me? Why didn't he appear to me? Why wasn't I there? He might have felt guilty for not being there. But he's gone into this thing of, I'm not having it. Until he appears to me, unless he does it for me, I'm not going to believe and I'm not going to go there because I wasn't there. So I'm not having it. That's my sort of human instinct as to what he might have thought. That's me. But John puts this in as a reaction of one of the apostles who wasn't there. And he's put it there for a reason. And like I say, Luke and Mark also say that the others reacted in a very similar way, but en masse. So, when a week later, Thomas is with them, maybe feeling, I'd better not separate myself from them because something might happen, Jesus appears. When he appears, what does... How does Thomas feel? What's he thinking when he sees this dead person in front of him? In the flesh, who the others had said, we've seen him, and he's gone, no. And he's now standing in front of him. Where's he at? And I also, one of my thoughts was, he's now possibly thinking, does he know what I said? Does he know where I'm at. And does Thomas start to worry, feel ashamed? But what Jesus does, we, I think we often focus on the stop doubting and believe, as if there's a, just a pure rebuke, don't be like that, be like this. 
But the first thing he does is look at Thomas and answer what he needs and to show that he knows what Thomas has said and what he needs. Because nobody had said to Jesus, Thomas said this. Thomas is sitting there going, ah, what's going on and what's he gonna, how's he going to see me? And Jesus says to him, look, see my hands, see my side. Because he knows that Thomas said, unless I see that, I won't believe. So he says to him, I know what you need. I know what you said. It's okay. Here is what you need to see. He does say, stop doubting or don't doubt, believe. And I think we get, uh, we get sort of word association going on in our heads of what those things mean. Uh, and then in terms of words, when I was sitting down going through all this and praying about it again the other day, a word came into my head and I had no idea what it means, which was genuflection. Some of you who have far more churchmanship than me will know one element of what it means. And I honestly had no idea. I had to look it up. Uh, and I looked it up and I'm going to tell you what it said. And then the next day I said to Vicky, do you know what genuflection means? And she went, yeah. She went, because it can, it, in the church, in, uh, especially in the Catholic church and in high church, it can be a gesture of that. But really what it means is to go down on one knee. I couldn't do that a few months ago. Uh, it's taken months of work to get to that. It was because of Helen's friend, Helen, who's <clears throat> told me what to do. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. I couldn't, I, I'd go down and couldn't get back up. Uh, so it can be a religious gesture, but I'm not talking about that. The same as with uh, Paul talks about Circumcision can be of the flesh or of the heart. And I'm sorry if I have just thrown a hand grenade into the dinner table conversations for some of the parents. Uh, but it's, I'm not talking about a gesture because a gesture can be of the heart or it can be a gesture because you think you need to do it. So in terms of genuflection, why do I feel that God put that word into my head and went, this is the word? And the gesture has come to mean various things, and it is used in, as we know, it's used in sport at the moment uh, with regards to Black Lives Matter. Uh, it's used for various things, and those of you who propose that way may have done that. And it hadn't occurred to me until I looked it up the other day. Uh, but typically, it was a gesture of... Submission to authority, it's a gesture of devotion. Uh, people would do it before a monarch, and you know that when people are knighted, they do that. And there's the old, the only thing I can think is, you know, there's old paintings of knights, as in sword and shield knights, going down like that when they are knighted. 
And one of the other things that struck me about it is that people would do it before a monarch because they put their heads below the monarchs. And that was certainly a thing. Uh, you know, they would bow before a monarch because nobody was allowed to have their head above the monarchs. I'll come back to that in a second. Uh, but I think that in Jesus' day, that was probably less of a thing because they were living in occupation. Whether they had respect for the Romans and their own monarchs, I don't know. And I sort of feel that, you know, when you've had, you've got a strong monarchy and respect for that position, and then you've got situations more like probably the New Testament Palestine and us today, where our view of authority is somewhat different. And our view of authority is to knock them and to criticize and not to be under it. So what came to me here was Thomas said to him, once Jesus had said to Thomas, I see what you need and here I am. Thomas's response was, my God and my King. And my sense was he came down. And in worship, he put his head under Jesus and his heart under him. And by that, I mean, in terms of faith, he stopped putting his faith in his perspective, his experience of, I wasn't there, so I don't believe. He came out of that rule of his own thoughts or following what he felt to look at the the risen one in front of him and say, ah, and this is something that Laurie said just before I stood up, if he put his thoughts, his feelings below that of Jesus. So his faith was in the one in front of him, not in his own thoughts or his own feelings. And that was, for me, what the stop doubting and believe was. It's where will you put your faith? Is it in your circumstance? Is it in your feeling left out, missed out, not seen, not understood? Or is it to look at one who does know? The final thing that came to me, if I can get this to show it, uh, which again ties up with stuff that uh, Laurie had said, and I know that uh, Johnny had got to because of the songs he'd chosen, was the thing that came to me as part of this was Psalm 47. <clears throat> and I've looked at various translations, sorry, excuse me. And <clears throat> uh, the second half of Psalm 47 I'll start with the ESV. Where's the second half start? God has gone up with a shout, the Lord, with the sound of a trumpet. Uh, sing praises to God, sing praises. Sing praises to our King, sing praises. For God is the King of all the earth. Sing praises with a psalm. God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. The princes of the people gather as the people of the God of Abraham. For the shields of the earth belong to God. He is highly exalted. 
Sorry, do excuse me a second. <clears throat> so here, as Thomas said, it's talking about God being God and King. Authority over all authority. And Thomas put himself below all of that and looked at him as the object of his faith. It struck me as well that that translation says the shields of the earth belong to God. He is highly exalted. So the weapons and the shields of worldly thing are below God. They belong to him. But it also occurred to me, of course, what is the shield in the armor of God in Ephesians 6? It's the shield of faith with which to extinguish the enemy's flaming arrows. So to finish, I'm going to read some, the second half of Psalm, bleh, Psalm 47 again. Uh, this is from the Passion Translation. God arises with the ear-splitting shout of his people. God goes up with a trumpet blast. Sing and celebrate. Sing some more. Celebrate some more. Sing your highest song of praise to our king. For God is the triumphant king. All the powers of the earth are his. So, sing your celebration songs of highest praise to the glorious enlightened one. Our God reigns over every nation. He reigns on his holy throne over all. All the nobles and princes, the loving servants of the God of Abraham, they all gather to worship. Every warrior's shield is now lowered as surrendered trophies before this king. He has taken his throne high and lofty, exalted over all. Amen.